Jacob stayed by himself, and a man wrestled with him until dawn broke. Watching Hamilton is like opening a time capsule, wrote David Sims of The Atlantic earlier this month, a strange throwback in more ways than one. Sims meant this, I think, on at least three different levels. In one sense, there's a painful nostalgia to watching a Broadway musical filmed live in 2020. When it was filmed in 2016, of course, and in 2020, there's absolutely no hope of a live Broadway musical happening anytime soon. In another sense, Sims means that this late 2016 filming of a 2015 and earlier production embodies, in a kind of way, a sort of optimism about America's future, and especially about the present present of America's race relations, that was somehow tied to the Obama era. And within just a few months, in November of 2020, four months after the Disney Plus version was filmed, would start, would start to feel a little strange. I love 2020. So in the first sense, it's strange to watch a Broadway musical in 2020 when we can't be in a theater. In another sense, Hamilton has this kind of Obama vibe of racial optimism. But in another sense, I think Sims is saying that Hamilton itself, Hamilton the musical, is a strange way of retelling America's past. The Hamilton, after all, who purchased slaves on behalf of family members, becomes an abolitionist, or almost so. The Hamilton, who is a British citizen moving between two different British colonies, becomes as an immigrant. Lily White cast of founding fathers becomes a kind of multiracial 21st century ensemble of surprisingly good singers. Hamilton, the musical, tells us a lot about how our founders envisioned America and its future, their dreams for what our nation would look like. Personally, I learned a lot just listening to the soundtrack on repeat in my car for a while about things I had never heard of in the 1770s and 1780s. But I think that Hamilton tells us even more about how we, its modern fans, imagine America today. Not only about their hopes for America's future, but about our hopes for America's present. After all, who wouldn't want to watch a musical right now in which a multiracial band of Americans rap about fiscal policy, about centralized banking, as if that was the big crisis? We're not quite facing that today. It's a dream of what the year 2020 could have been, primaries and all. Like every founding myth, in other words, I think that Hamilton tells us at least as much about we who retell it, at least about us, those who retell it today, as it tells us about the foundation itself. I love founding stories like this. I love the way that we retell them, like old family stories, when we pick out the family story that we tell and retell, and it says something about how we want to see ourselves in the retelling. 
And so I find it completely delightful that this morning's bizarre tale from the book of Genesis is how the Bible tells the story of the founding of the people of God. Because this is that moment. This moment when God renames Jacob Israel is like the Bible's equivalent of the Declaration of Independence, the creation of a new nation with a new name and a new identity. It's one of a handful of turning points in the Bible in the relationship between God and humankind. Those of us living in the 21st century often hear Israel and think of the country Israel over there in the Middle East, eastern edge of the Mediterranean, founded 1948. But in the Bible, Israel doesn't refer to a country in that sense. It doesn't even usually refer to the land that the people live in. It usually refers to the people themselves, the people of Israel, the descendants of Jacob's 11 sons and two of his grandsons who became the 12 tribes of Israel. It's a family who come to realize that they are, in some sense, a chosen people of God, an instrument through whom God is choosing to work for the redemption and the salvation of the whole world. Early Christians picked up on that same idea, believing themselves to be a part of the faithful remnant of that people of Israel. And so you'll hear Paul in this morning's reading refer on the one hand to the Israelites, his own relatives and ancestors, the Jewish people. And then just a verse after we end, he'll say that not all of them are members of Israel according to the Spirit. Some Gentiles, though, are. The people of Israel grows from this biological, genealogical family of Jacob, renamed Israel in this story, into something bigger, a spiritual Israel, including people of all nations. So for both Jews and Christians, the story this morning, the story of Jacob wrestling with God, is an origin story. It's a moment that gives us a new name and a new meaning, that tells us who we ought to be and what we ought to do. And so just as Hamilton tells us that we are a nation of striving immigrants by telling a story about a single striving immigrant, Genesis 32 wants to tell us a story about who we are by telling us a story about who is in the moment that he's renamed Israel. We, the people of God, Genesis seems to say, are a people defined by one crucial thing, not by holding the same values or by saying the same prayers or even by believing the same things. We are defined by wrestling with the same God. Usually, our wrestling with God is a little less physical and a little more spiritual and metaphorical. But that doesn't make it any less intense than Jacob's struggle. Sometimes we wrestle with God in our doubt, wondering whether there's a God out there at all or whether we're just seeing phantoms in the shadows of the night. Sometimes we wrestle with God in our prayer, wondering why things have to be this way, why God can't just come and set things right, why the Jesus who feeds and heals leaves so many of us sick and hungry. Sometimes we wrestle with God in our simplest and most momentous life decisions, looking for a sign or a voice or a clue to point us where we ought to go, to name us so we know who we really are and who we're meant to be. 
And this wrestling, like Jacob's wrestling, can be hard. It can leave us tired and dirty, limping away with a vague blessing, wondering where, where the God we've just seen face to face will be in the morning. I don't know if you have ever watched a wrestling match. I would sometimes see our wrestlers practicing in the gym while we ran around the inside of it for indoor track practice. But let me tell you, wrestling is nothing like yeast rising. If you don't know what I'm talking about, feel free to uh, close this tab and go and watch last week's sermon, which was about the parable of the, the leaven, the yeast. But I'm not joking. I'm not just doing a pop quiz on sermon recollection. I really mean it. I think it's an important point. The Bible tells us that our life with God is like a little leaven, a little yeast mixed in with a huge amount of flour. And the Bible also tells us that our life with God is like a wrestling match in the middle of the night with a mysterious stranger. And these are very different things. Yeast, after all, works slowly but steadily. A ball of dough rises at a more or less constant and predictable rate we know that two hours from now, the dough will have risen more than it will two minutes from now. A wrestling match is very different. There's no smooth, linear progression. You'll often see two wrestlers stuck in a kind of stalemate, struggling against each other in one position for almost a minute until one person's strength fails or one person's foot slips and suddenly they flip over into some new combination. If yeast is all gradual progress and expansion, wrestling moves fits and starts. And sometimes your opponent even cheats. Sometimes he takes a cheap shot. He bends the rules of the game you thought you were playing, and he breaks a muscle in your hip. It's an odd mixture, this pair of images, the wrestling and the yeast. But I love it. I love it because our spiritual lives are odd and mixed. At times, each one of us, I think, wrestles with God. Each one of us, I assume, at some point has wanted to reach out and shake God. Why me? Why this? Why now? Each one of us has wrestled with a thousand difficult questions of how to believe in a loving God in an often unloving world. And yet, alongside this disruption and dismay, the little mustard seed of faith has grown. A little yeast has slowly leavened all the dough. In other words, even in the chaos of the wrestling match, there's something slowly growing deep within our souls. We don't always know what's happening at the time. You might notice, for example, that Jacob, as far as he can tell, has won over God. Even with a muscle in his leg torn, Jacob can't be overcome. The stranger gives up, cries uncle, and Jacob receives the blessing he's asked for. Jacob wins a wrestling match with God. But in a much deeper sense, Jacob is won over by God. Jacob, the trickster, becomes Israel. He strives with God in Hebrew. God takes charge of Jacob's very essence, gives him a new name, a new meaning, a new description of who he is at the core. And the story of the people of God begins a new chapter. We all, at different times, wrestle with God. 
And for me, the beauty of this story is that that's okay. In fact, it's not just okay, it's who we are. It's who we, as a people, are meant to be. Just as Hamilton wants to tell us that we are a multi-ethnic, multicultural nation of immigrants working to be the best nation that we can be. Genesis 32, this story of God's wrestling with Jacob, wants to tell us that we're not meant to follow blindly. We're not supposed to accept others' ideas about God without questions or doubts. We're not meant to give in to that outside force, that stranger in the night. We're meant to wrestle with God and with one another in all our doubts and struggles and uncertainties as we strive with one another to love God and our neighbor. Because we are among the children of Jacob, we are a part of the people of Israel, the people who strive with God. Amen.